Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, December 16th and Sunday, December 17th, 2023. Uh, I don't know if this will get picked up on the microphone, but it is raining so hard here that I am uh, astonished by the amount of noise it's causing. So if that's if there's some uh, weird background noise, it's really literally just the rain beating on, on uh, the house here. So my apologies. Uh, I do want to say before we get started, we are approaching the Christmas, New Year's holiday season, which means it's almost time for uh, Foreign Exchange's annual break, uh, holiday break. Uh, those of you who have been around uh, this newsletter or uh, American Prestige or just me for the last few months know that this has been a uh, fairly challenging year for me on a personal level, and uh, I do have some family issues to address over the holidays. So uh, my plan at this point is to pause the newsletter after Tuesday night's roundup. That's a, a bit earlier than I would probably do it in a normal year. Uh, and I will resume, hopefully, a normal schedule on Sunday, January 7th. Uh, if there is any major, if there are any major, I guess, world developments over that time, I may break in here and there uh, with an update or two along the way. But um, otherwise, we will... Uh, stick to a, a sort of holiday schedule for that period of time. Uh, obviously, I'll I'll say more on Tuesday, but uh, let me take this opportunity to say uh, I wish you and yours a, a happy holiday season, and uh, thank you all for supporting foreign exchanges in 2023. Uh, let's get into the news. Uh, there are a few anniversaries on December 16th in the year 755. Chinese General An Lushan declared himself emperor, attempting to usurp power from the ruling Tang Dynasty. The An Lushan Rebellion lasted over seven years, uh, long after the death of its namesake in 757. And while it failed, it also badly weakened the Tang Dynasty, which strengthened the neighboring Uyghur Khaganate and the Tibetan Empire. Uh, on December 16, 1944, a major and sudden German offensive in the Ardennes Forest began the Battle of the Bulge, one of the most important engagements on the Western Front in World War II. The battle ended on January 25, 1945, with an Allied victory. Uh, the German attack did delay the Allied advance into Germany by several weeks, but the cost was the near obliteration of whatever remained of the German military's capacity to wage an offensive war. On December 16th, 1971, the Indo-Pakistani War and the Bangladesh Liberation War, this is not a coincidence, they're two parts of the same conflict, both ended. Uh, I do have a uh, piece on this uh, at the newsletter if you're interested in reading more. Uh, the Bangladesh Liberation War is just what it says. It uh, was a, an effort by the people of what was at that point known as East Pakistan to break away from West Pakistan and form their own nation. The Pakistani military, which was dominated by Westerners, uh, committed uh, really just horrific human rights violations in what would become Bangladesh. Uh, eventually, the Indian government got involved, the Indian military got involved, in part because of the refugee crisis. Uh, and the war was over shortly after that. The Indian military just pummeled the Pakistanis and uh, forced a fairly quick end to the war. If you're uh, interested in this from the perspective of U.S. Cold War history, you probably know that uh, the 
Uh, Nixon administration with uh, good old Henry Kissinger, the dear departed Henry Kissinger, made the, uh, shall we say, uh, expected decision, I guess, the normal way of things for the United States in the Cold War to back the uh, human rights violators in Pakistan uh, against the Bangladesh liberation movement and against the Indian government, uh, the Russian Soviet, sorry, not Russian, Soviet military, uh, did move naval assets uh, into the Bay of Bengal, where the U.S. uh, had moved an aircraft carrier to try to uh, kind of shut the Indians down. The Soviet Union then moved its own assets into the Bay uh, to shadow the Americans, and basically they seemed to have canceled each other out, and the Indians were able to have free reign. Um, On December 17th, 1398, another event in South Asian history. Uh, This is uh, the date of the Battle of Delhi, uh, where the army of the Turco-Mongolian warlord Timur Tamerlane uh, basically committed one of the the worst war crimes in history. I don't mean to be uh, glib about it, although it was a long time ago. Uh, But Timur is known for uh, a couple of things. One of them is his just uh, impressively brutal reputation for killing people and having no compunction about killing innocents, uh, warriors, people who were already, had already surrendered, uh, and all manner of folks. And this was no exception. The, the sack of Delhi by Timur's forces is one of the most violent incidents in Indian history, maybe one of the most violent in- incidents in all of world military history. He turned his army loose on the city, it looted anything that wasn't nailed down and killed. Uh, well, we don't really know. The uh, high-end estimates uh, put the death toll... Uh, at maybe 100,000 people or more, uh, but uh, that's probably, it was probably a bit lower than that, but we don't know. So uh, just an all-around horrific event. And there, uh, this too, I have a, a piece up at the uh, newsletter if you'd like to read more. On December 17th, 2010, a Tunisian street vendor in Sidi Bouzid named Mohamed Bouazizi set fire to himself to protest mistreatment by corrupt municipal authorities Public outrage over Boazizi's death sparked the Tunisian Revolution, which in turn sparked the Arab Spring Movement, or at least helped to spark the Arab Spring Movement. Uh, Moving on to the news, we start in Israel-Palestine in the Middle East, uh, where on a positive note, the Israeli government on Sunday began for the first time allowing aid trucks to pass through the Karem Shalom checkpoint near uh, to enter Gaza. This is from southern Israel. As I've mentioned previously, this is a significant step in terms of increasing the amount of humanitarian aid that can get into the territory. Opening Karem Shalom creates a second channel for aid trucks in addition to the overcapacity Rafah checkpoint. And unlike Rafah, which was built mainly to handle foot traffic, this checkpoint was actually designed for heavy trucks. Uh, The benefits of opening Karem Shalom, of course, are barely more than window dressing in the face of continued sustained Israeli bombardment across Gaza and the military or IDF operation in Khan Yunus. None of that diminished over the weekend. However, the weekend also brought indications the talks have resumed around another ceasefire prisoner release deal. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reportedly dispatched Mossad Director David Barnea to an unspecified location in Europe late Friday to meet with Qatari Prime Minister Mohammed bin Abdurrahman Al Thani on that subject. The Qatari government has since confirmed the talks are underway, and according to an Israeli, according to Israeli media, another such encounter in Europe is forthcoming. Uh, Egyptian officials have said that Hamas leadership is open to the idea as well, though the two sides are not yet on the same page. 
Netanyahu hinted at new talks in a Saturday press conference that was perhaps in part a response to renewed outrage from the families of the Israeli hostages who are still being held in Gaza. What's sparking the outrage, you ask? Well, it's the fallout from an incident on Friday, which we covered, in which Israeli soldiers gunned down three hostages in northern Gaza. It turns out that the three were shirtless and waving a makeshift white flag and had makeshift SOS banners, but that soldiers opened fire on them anyway. Uh, Needless to say, the shooting has added to the already considerable pressure on Netanyahu to at least make a token effort at getting the hostages out of Gaza alive. Friday's incident has been characterized in media as accidental or a mistake, but in reality it's a fairly expected outcome of an IDF operating posture that tells soldiers to shoot first and ask questions later or never. Soldiers only bothered to check the bodies in this case because of questions about their appearance. The IDF considers all of northern Gaza a free fire zone under the presumption that Gazan militants could pose as civilians and anyway, the Israeli government told people to evacuate the area weeks ago. It would, and regularly does, open fire on Palestinian civilians, so the potential for an Israeli hostage or two or three to wind up being killed in those circumstances is fairly high. Israeli officials can claim in hindsight that Friday's incident violated the IDF's rules of engagement as they have, uh, but had these been three Palestinians, I doubt they would be saying anything at all. Uh, In other items, uh, steady IDF violence in the West Bank continued through the weekend as well. A major Israeli operation in the northern city of Tulkarm left at least five Palestinians dead on Sunday, at least two of them killed in IDF drone strikes. Israeli soldiers reportedly blocked ambulances from reaching wounded people amid the fighting. Israeli soldiers killed at least three Palestinians in three separate incidents, including one in Tulkarm, on Saturday. Israeli forces have now killed nearly 300 Palestinians in the West Bank since the October 7th militant attacks. The IDF announced on Saturday that its siege of Kamal Adwan Hospital in northern Gaza was over. According to Israeli officials, the IDF took some 80 prisoners from the facility and recovered weapons. It also allegedly used bulldozers to massacre a crowd of civilians, some of them wounded, who were camped outside the hospital. This this story hasn't been confirmed, but there's enough video of it circulating online to qualify as smoke from the proverbial fire. The Palestinian Authority says that it's demanding an investigation. Uh, If you hadn't already guessed, the hospital itself is reportedly in ruins in the wake of the siege. Uh, And the IDF announced on Sunday that its personnel had discovered a very large Hamas tunnel wide enough to accommodate vehicles positioned very close to the Erez checkpoint on the northern end of Gaza. Assuming this is accurate, this tunnel was almost certainly used during the October 7th attacks. The discovery of a structure this large located so near to a major Israeli security outpost is going to raise new questions as to how exactly Israeli military and intelligence services were spending their time prior to October 7th, because clearly they weren't keeping a particularly watchful eye on Gaza. In Syria, Syrian military shelling killed at least seven people and wounded another six in Aleppo province on Sunday, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. The shelling may have been in response to a Hayat Tahrir al-Sham attack in Latakia province uh, that killed at least five soldiers, which in turn appears to have been retaliation for military shelling earlier on Sunday that wounded at least 14 people in Idlib province. Meanwhile, the Syrian military is saying that an apparent Israeli missile strike wounded two soldiers near Damascus on Sunday night. This story broke fairly late in the day, so there may be additional information available by tomorrow's roundup. In Yemen, the U.S. and U.K. navies said on Saturday that their vessels had collectively shot down 15 drones in the Red Sea, all presumably launched by the Houthi rebels in northern Yemen. 
The Guardian's Patrick Wintour reported on Sunday that the Biden administration is set to unveil a new expanded coalition of nations committed to monitoring shipping traffic through the Red Sea region in response to the ongoing wave of Houthi attacks. With major shipping firms now swearing off the Red Sea and thus the Suez Canal as a result of these attacks, the coalition's intended effect will be as much psychological as practical. Meanwhile, the Houthis said on Saturday that their representatives are engaged in talks with what they called international parties mediated by the Omani government over the Red Sea situation. It's unclear who these parties are, but I think the announcement highlights part of the Houthis' rationale in getting involved in the Gaza conflict in this fashion. Uh, They want to be seen as an important regional actor, and to that end, they're highlighting the fact that international parties are now talking to them. In Lebanon, something the IDF characterized as a hostile aircraft, presumably a drone, killed one Israeli soldier and wounded two others near the Lebanese border on Saturday. That makes at least seven Israeli soldiers killed in cross-border conflict since October 7th. The exchange of fire between the IDF and Hezbollah continued on Sunday, though I haven't seen any reports of casualties. And in Kuwait... Emir Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmad al-Sabah died on Saturday, approaching three weeks after the emergency health problem that put him in the hospital late last month. Former Crown Prince Sheikh Mashal al-Ahmed al-Sabah, who was already running the emirate on a de facto basis, succeeded his brother as emir. At 83, Mashal was presumably the oldest heir apparent in the world, and for obvious reasons, one assumes he'll be naming his own heir apparent ASAP. His choice is likely going to involve a generational shift in the Kuwaiti monarchy, which could create or exacerbate tension within the royal family. Moving on to Asia and Bangladesh, a protest organized by the opposition Bangladesh Nationalist Party brought tens of thousands of people out into the streets of Dhaka on Saturday. The BNP is still demanding the resignation of Bangladeshi Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina and her cabinet in favor of a technocratic, I put that in quotes, government that would oversee next year's parliamentary election. The party has been figuratively and for some of its leaders literally on the run since a similar demonstration in late October turned violent and resulted in the death of a police officer. Party supporters marched on the BNP's headquarters on Saturday, uh, which Bangladeshi authorities apparently padlocked after that incident uh, in October. Uh, In Myanmar, that alleged Chinese-brokered ceasefire in Myanmar's Shan State took another serious blow on Saturday when the Rebel Tang National Liberation Army, part of the Three Brotherhood Alliance Coalition, announced uh, that its fighters had seized the town of Namsan, The TNLA also announced its capture of the 105-mile trade zone, which in uh, AFP's parlance is a major trading conduit on the border with China. So clearly uh, Myanmar's junta is still losing ground here. Uh, In the Philippines, fighting between the Philippine military and New People's Army rebels near the town of Balayan left at least six rebels and one soldier dead on Sunday with at least three more soldiers wounded. Uh, It's unclear what caused the incident, but it comes at a somewhat inopportune time, about three weeks after the Philippine government and the NPA agreed to resume peace talks. It's unclear whether Sunday's clash could threaten those talks. In North Korea, the North Korean military fired off a ballistic missile uh, from the country's east coast on Sunday evening and then followed that up with a second launch early Monday morning. Uh, It's too soon for many details about the launches. 
the South Korean military uh, has been warning uh, that Pyongyang might be ramping up for a test slash demonstration of an intercontinental ballistic missile. And the second launch may have been just that, although right now reports are only saying that it involved a long range ballistic missile of some kind. In announcing the Sunday evening launch, North Korean media blamed the U.S. and South Korean governments, which it lambasted as military gangsters, for provoking regional tensions. It cited the arrival to South Korea on Sunday of the U.S. attack submarine, nuclear-powered attack submarine, USS Missouri. Uh, the U.S. and South Korea also held a meeting of their bilateral nuclear consultative, consultative group rather uh, on Friday that doesn't appear to have been well-received in Pyongyang. On to Africa and Sudan. The Rapid Support Forces Group continued to assail the hitherto peaceful Sudanese city of Wad Madani over the weekend as the Sudanese military attempted, not very successfully it seems, to blunt the RSF's advance with airstrikes. Because the military RSF conflict hadn't reached Wad Madani, the city had become something of a safe haven for Sudanese civilians displaced by fighting in the Khartoum region to the north. Presumably many of them were among the thousands of people who fled the city over the weekend amid the RSF offensive. The Chadian government on Sunday declared four Sudanese diplomats persona non grata and expelled them from the country in response to recent accusations from the Sudanese military that Chad has been assisting the RSF. The Sudanese military did likewise with three Chadian diplomats in retaliation. Uh, in Chad, voters went to the polls on Sunday to consider a new constitution. Uh, in a referendum that will mark the first real stage of the country's transition back to nominally civilian rule. Chad's ruling junta has clearly put its finger on the yes side of the scale, so I don't think there's much suspense as to the outcome, though official results may take some time. And in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, a number of Congolese political and militia groups, including the M23 militia, met in Nairobi on Friday to unveil something that they're calling the Congo River Alliance. I'm not entirely clear as to, as to its mission, but the new group was clearly not welcomed by the Congolese government. It has recalled its ambassadors from Kenya and Tanzania and has summoned Kenya's senior diplomatic representative in Kinshasa to lodge a complaint. The East African Community Bloc's headquarters is in Tanzania, which appears to be the reason the DRC recalled that ambassador. Uh, meanwhile, just days before the DRC's December 20th election, two candidates were, for parliament were killed on Friday, one in a shooting match in South Kivu province and the other in a shooting in North Kivu province. Violence from partisans across the political spectrum is one of many factors threatening to upend Wednesday's vote. On to Europe and Russia, the governor of that country's Belgorod Oblast, Vyacheslav Gladkov, reported via telegram on Sunday that the village of Trebreno was under attack by Russian forces, or by Ukrainian forces, rather, excuse me. Uh, the right-wing pair, well, they are sort of Russian, sorry, I'm getting off track. The right-wing paramilitary Freedom of Russia Legion, uh, which is based in Ukraine but is a Russian partisan group, later claimed responsibility for the attack, which it said targeted a, quote, platoon stronghold of Russian troops, end quote, without indicating whether it had actually resulted in any casualties and or damage. Gladkov's statement indicated some damage to local houses and a power line, but no casualties. The previous day, he'd reported multiple attacks in the, in the province, probably by Ukrainian drones. 
speaking of Ukraine and speaking of those strikes, they were part of a substantial exchange of drone fire over the weekend. Uh, Vasily Golubev, governor of Russia's Rostov Oblast, uh, reported a large number of Ukrainian strikes overnight that apparently targeted the Russian military's uh, Morozov, Morozovsk Air Base. Uh, sorry, my Russian is not great, as you might uh, know. Uh, a Russian drone strike, meanwhile, in Ukraine killed at least one person overnight uh, in the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. Uh, and Russian shelling later on Sunday killed at least one man in Ukraine's Kherson Oblast. In Serbia, meanwhile, that country's uh, snap parliamentary election on Sunday went about as expected, with the ruling Serbian Progressive Party, or SNS, winning what appears to have been a pretty overwhelming victory. While final results aren't available yet, uh, a sampling of ballots already counted gives SNS around 46% of the vote, Double the 26, 23%, excuse me, its main opposition, Serbia Against Violence or SPN coalition received. If that's accurate, SNS should hold a sole majority in the new parliament, though it will pre- presumably take on coalition partners to cushion that majority. The party also appears to have won a narrow victory over SPN in the Belgrade municipal election. While the parliamentary outcome was never in doubt, there was some question as to, as to whether SNS could hang on to control of the Serbian capital. In the Americas, in Chile, that country's constitutional referendum on Sunday also seems to have conformed to polling, uh, with voters roundly rejecting a draft constitution regarded as even more conservative than the country's current Augusto Pinochet promulgated charter. Nearly all of the votes have been counted, and no took just under 56% of the vote. Chilean President Gabriel Boric, who tried and failed to pass a much leftier draft in a plebiscite last year and whose presidency has been in limbo ever since, has said that he has no intention of trying a third time to replace the 1980 constitution. Uh, In Colombia, the National Liberation Army, or ELN, that country's largest active rebel group, announced on Sunday that it's giving up kidnapping for ransom as a tactic under the rubric of its current ceasefire with the Colombian government. So if the ceasefire goes, I guess kidnapping will be back on the menu. The parties had another negotiating session over the weekend as part of their long-range peace process and may have discussed ELN's kidnapping a couple of months ago of the father of Colombian football star Luis Diaz. That incident didn't do much for ELN's public image, and the backlash may have contributed to the decision to give up the practice. It's unclear whether the group intends to release the 38 give-or-take people it is currently believed to be holding. And finally, in the United States, responsible statecrafts Artin Dersimonian and Ben Freeman point to the extensive lobbying operation that has muted the reaction in both Europe and the United States to recent events in the Southern Caucasus. And I'll read you uh, of the introduction to their piece. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chair Ben Cardin, Democrat of Maryland, recently sent a letter to Secretary of State Antony Blinken urging him to get tougher on Azerbaijan for its, quote, brazen campaign of ethnic cleansing in Nagorno-Karabakh, end quote. This follows an earlier statement from Cardin shortly after Azerbaijan's September lightning offensive against Nagorno-Karabakh that called for the U.S. to, quote, halt security assistance to Azerbaijan, end quote, and increase humanitarian support for the 100,000 ethnic Armenians who fled en masse from Nagorno-Karabakh. As of this writing, neither of those things has occurred, and the Biden administration has done little to address Azerbaijan's military aggression. While there are undoubtedly myriad reasons for the U.S. government's lukewarm response, one possible explanation is one of Washington's oldest pastimes, lobbying. 
for years, uh, the Azerbaijani government has been financing a well-connected lobbying and influence operation in the U.S. that has worked diligently to keep U.S. military assistance flowing and to ensure the policymakers turn a blind eye to the country's consistent human rights violations. As documented in a just-released Quincy Institute brief, the lobbying battle for Nagorno-Karabakh, the government of Azerbaijan has spent millions of dollars on registered lobbyists and much more on illicit influence operations that have helped foster and maintain support for across Europe and the U.S. And if this is something that interests you, I would urge you to click through and read the piece. Uh, but for us, that's all for this weekend. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And thanks uh, to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially paid foreign exchanges subscribers for making this newsletter possible. Uh, again, uh, we've got a couple more days before I go on break, but uh, I do want to say happy holidays to uh, all of you and your families and uh, loved ones. Uh, and thanks for supporting the newsletter. And uh, yeah, until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.